Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to, 11, uh, 1 to 12. Our passage today is Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Good morning. It's great to see all of you. I'm very thankful that you were able to come out. Glad that we have the gift of this building. It was wonderful to hear your voices as we're worshiping, as we're going through the liturgy together. Really, really good to see you all. Good to be with you virtually uh, as well, for those who are joining us virtually. For those who are visiting uh, and may not know me, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series in the book of Mark today. We come to a passage that will distract us from what we need to see if we let it. It's a very, very dramatic passage. Four friends of a man who is paralyzed are desperate that they would get him in front of Jesus. And so they rip a hole in a roof while the downstairs is absolutely packed out. You can imagine the surprise of the people down below. Roofs in that day were made out of branches and thatch and then mudded over. And so you can just imagine all of the mess raining down on top of them. You can see the people trying to get out of the way. There's nowhere to go to get out of the way. Jesus stops teaching. This guy suddenly appears and he's slowly lowered down. He's healed in such an amazing way that everybody there is stunned. Very dramatic account, so dramatic that if we allow it, it's going to cloud why Mark put it here. Why did Mark give it to us? It's because his focus is on Jesus. There is something about Jesus that we have to see in this account that we have not yet seen, and we need to really make sure our focus is on him. Now, if you do that, if you focus on him, you discover there are three things here that you learn, three answers to three questions, very important questions. First, you're going to see who Jesus cares about, who's on his radar. Second, you're going to see what he thinks those people need, those people who are on his radar. And third, we're going to see why anybody should care about the, what Jesus thinks. So who does Jesus 
care about what does he think they need and why should we care what he thinks? First, who does he care about? At first glance, that seems like a fairly obvious question with an obvious answer. It's the paralytic, of course. He heals him. But back up and think. Think about who Jesus spends most of his time with in this account. And you realize it's the scribes. He spends more time talking with them and engaging with them than he does with the paralytic. He perceives that they're struggling, that they're going through this internal debate. It's hidden from view, but he reads their hearts in verse 6. He knows what is going on, that they're questioning him. They're questioning what he just said about forgiving the man's sins. They're struggling. And notice this. I love this about Jesus. He does not make them take the first step to deal with that struggle. Doesn't make them say it out loud. Doesn't force them to bring it to him. Doesn't make them close the gap to where he is. Instead, what? He goes to them. He closes the gap, and he starts a conversation with them. They're not initiating. Jesus is. And he meets them on their own territory. Scribes were not simply dictation experts. They were not copyists. Scribes were experts in Jewish law. They were someone who had religious authority to teach the people. They were educated leaders of the people. And so what does Jesus do? He engages them at the level of ideas. He runs a logical proposition by them. He's speaking their language. Gives them a case study in logic as a way of helping them think through who he is and to mentally evaluate what he's saying. He asks in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or rise up, take your bed and walk. In other words, he says to the scribes, if you're doubting that I can do what I just said, that I can forgive sins, I'm going to give you a test for me, a way for you to see whether I'm legit or not. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Now you think about that and you realize, well, the quick answer is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Easier to say that because it's impossible for any human to verify whether or not that's actually happened. So anybody could say it and he'd have no way to know if it was actually true or not. On the other hand, telling a paralyzed man to get up and walk is verifiable. It's going to be harder to pull off because everyone can tell immediately whether or not it happened. That's the quick answer. But again, think. Think about it a little bit more and you realize, actually, neither is easier. Only God can do either one. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can reanimate a paralyzed body. So if you're human, both are equally impossible. And if you're God, both are equally possible. They're equally difficult. But if you can do the one, that demonstrates then that you are in the God category, which means that you can do the other one as well. And if you can't do the one... Clearly, you're human. You can't do the other one either. So whether you go with the quick answer or the more thoughtful one, you realize Jesus has just set a test for how they can know that he is able to do what he said, that he can forgive sins. If he can do the thing that we can see, we have a reason, a concrete, logical reason for believing that he can do the thing that we can't see. You realize that what Jesus just did here is he said there is a rational basis for faith. There's a rational basis for believing him when he talks, that you don't park your mind 
when you come to faith. You don't take a blind leap of faith, but that you use all of the intellectual faculties that God's given you in coming to faith and then in living out your faith. And he tells us that as he constructs a means for testing this on a rational basis. And Jesus, again, you have to realize this, he voluntarily offers that to the scholars and the intellectuals of his day. From that perspective, he put more into his interaction with the scribes than he does with the man who's healed. What do you conclude from that? That he cares equally for both the paralyzed man and for the scribes. The answer then to who does Jesus care about is literally whoever's in front of him. Everybody in the room. But then let's think about that a little bit more. If you stumbled across someone who was suffering, and there's something that you can do to alleviate their suffering, it's easy to believe that you would, that you would extend yourself to them. That's what healthy human beings do. We care about human beings, especially when they're suffering. So from a human perspective, Jesus's concern for the paralyzed man, it, it, it makes sense. It's basic human compassion working the way that compassion is supposed to work. But the scribes are not suffering. They're not coming to Jesus with a physical need for him to meet. In fact, in one sense, they're not coming to him at all. They're sitting there judging him, mentally evaluating him, and they've just concluded, verse 7, he's blaspheming. Jesus is sinning. He's doing what he should not be doing, saying what he should not be saying. Their stance toward him is not overt yet. It's not out in the open. But in their hearts, there's an antagonism against him. It's growing. It's an antagonism that for the moment is silent. But it challenges him, and it challenges what he's doing. It's challenging that he has the authority to do what he's doing. And Jesus reads their antagonism accurately. He knows it's there in them. And what does he do? He moves toward them anyway. He thinks carefully about how to engage them, initiates by offering them something that might help them. Why is that? It's because he wants them to get past their doubts. He wants them to know, verse 10, that he does have the authority that he just claimed to have. He wants them to know for sure that he has this authority. He wants them to know. He wants them to get past their doubts, to have the same kind of faith that he sees in the paralyzed man's friends, the kind of faith that pushes you forward, that overcomes any obstacle that's in the way so that you can get to Jesus. He wants them to have that kind of faith. That's the first thing you have to see here about Jesus, that he cares deeply for the variety of people that he encounters regardless of their need and regardless of their stance toward him. Which is where following Jesus will take you. It'll take you to that same kind of love. It'll take you to be loved by him, regardless of who you are or your stance toward him. It'll take you to be loved by him into becoming someone who loves like he does. That's his goal that you would be so filled up with his love that it would pour out of you to literally every single person that you encounter. That you would love those who suffer. That you would let their need affect you. That you would let them break into your comfortable life. That you would let them rip a hole in your roof. Interrupt what you're doing. Bring all of that to a complete stop 
and that you would care for them. Being loved by Jesus makes you someone who loves those who suffer. And it makes you someone who loves those who are antagonistic. Those who sit silently judging you, or those who are not always so silent. Those who hate you when you've done nothing wrong and have done nothing to deserve their hate. Being loved by Jesus turns you into that kind of lover, one who is like he is, so that even when you're aware of someone's antagonism, you don't respond with antagonism of your own, but you engage them. You don't ignore them. You don't necessarily walk away from them. Jesus doesn't hear, but you engage them out of a genuine love for them. Why? Because you see that they are still made in the image of God, and therefore you're still moved toward them. You move toward them out of a deep concern that wants something so much better for them, actually far better than they actually want for themselves. Martin Luther King said it powerfully toward the end of a sermon on Jesus' command to love our enemies. Dr. King had talked about all the various ways that hate destroys both the one who hates and the larger world that we all live in. He then looked at the people who were listening to him and he said, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. That's what happens to you when Jesus loves you. He puts something in your heart now that says, even when you hate me, I love you. And I would rather die than return your hate with hate. That voice is in your heart, beating there. Why? Because it beat in Jesus' heart. It beat in his heart in that torn apart room as he engaged the scribes. And it beat in his heart all the way to the cross where he literally did die rather than hate you and me. Where he loved us so that he could pour his spirit into our hearts and make us lovers, make us the kind of people who love like he does. People who don't just love those who love us but transform us into people who love those who hate us. People who say, I will not walk in hate because I've been loved and now I live in love and I will not leave love. I will not walk out of love. I will not walk out of loving ever again because I have been loved. And when I struggle to love, I don't give in to hate and bitterness. I don't rehash all of the grievances that I have against someone. I also don't try to pretend, trying to make myself feel something for someone that I don't feel. Instead, I go back to the source of love. And I cry out to be loved in all of my present ugliness and my unwillingness to love like I have been loved. I ask for love to soften my heart one more time, which God does. Why? Because he loves those not only who suffer, but also those who are antagonistic to him and to his ways, those who don't want to love their neighbor as themselves. That's point one. Point two. What does Jesus think people need? What does his love offer to those he loves. If you saw a paralyzed man 
what would you assume his, decent, his deepest, most basic, most fundamental need is, the need that you would want to relieve if you had the authority to do so? I think most of us would be drawn to his physical condition, right? We live in a world that defines happiness and quality of life in temporal terms, in terms of what happens in this life. And so it just makes sense to us to look at a paralyzed man and think he can't possibly have a good life unless his body is physically whole. That's his most important need. Now Jesus looks at all the same things that you and I would look at. The man's inability to move himself, feed himself, bathe himself, relieve himself, provide for himself, do productive things, act on his own interests, his desires, have a family, enjoy himself. Jesus sees all of that, and he sees that there's faith. Trust in him to provide for what the man needs, and so he responds to the man's deepest need. He says to him, verse 5, son, your sins are forgiven. And you look at that and you think, it kind of seems like Jesus missed the point. Like he doesn't get the real reason why these guys tore through the roof just to get their friend in front of him. How do we make sense of this? You have to understand first what Jesus means by the word sins. In the church, as well as the larger society, when we hear the word sin, we tend to think of individual particular instances of things that we have done wrong. And we focus on those individual acts while ignoring the source of what actually produced those individual acts. We focus on the acts and we miss the source. Scripture doesn't. And so God tells us over and over and over that our biggest problem is not the bad things that we do or think. Those things are bad, but they are not the deepest problem that we have. They are smaller expressions of a deeper badness, a deeper orientation to life that refuses to organize itself with respect to God and with respect to what he desires. It's an orientation to life that has decided to be our own reference point, to decide on our own authority what is a good life and what is not. That's the fundamental nature of sin. It's the nature that is below all of those individual acts that we're aware of. It's a rebellious stance toward God that says, I know how to live my life, and I don't want to hear anything from you about it. It's a fundamental rebellious stance that then gets expressed in countless acts of rebellion. That's what Jesus is targeting as the man's deepest need, to be forgiven his rebellion that is expressed in all those countless ways. Now why? Why when presented with a man who came for physical healing, why does Jesus say, wait, you have a deeper need. You first need your sins forgiven. Why does Jesus think that? Let me put it really starkly. Why does he prioritize sin over suffering? It's because if Jesus does not forgive the man his sins, he really can do nothing for him of any lasting value. Think about it this way. Ask yourself, what is this man's greatest need? We've been conditioned in the West. We think in temporal terms, we think in physical terms. So when we think, what is your deepest need? We tend to think, well, you know, humans need food, clothing, and shelter. 
When you have that, then we need safety and security. Then we need friendships and relationships. We need something worthwhile to do and so on up the, the chain. All of those things are important. But there's a subtle assumption built into the way that we think about those things as needs. And you can tease that assumption out by asking the question, okay, these things are all important, but what do we need these things for? What do we need these things for? And the answer is something like this. You need those things in order to live a full, satisfying, happy life. But that answer is time-bound. It's limited to thinking about this life and this life only. If you understand that you and I are not limited to this life only, that once a soul is conceived, it is now eternal, then a full, satisfying, happy life is not limited to this time span, to these 70, 80, 90 years, but it extends into eternity. And so the real question is, what do you need in order to live an eternally full, satisfying, happy life? What do you need? The answer is nothing that you can find on this planet. If someone took everything away from you that supports life, food, shelter, clothing, all up the scale, what will happen to you? Obviously, you'll die. But if you are right with God, if you are righteous, if you are forgiven your sins, you'll live with him forever. You'll live with him forever in love, eternally, blissfully happy. On the other hand, if you have literally everything that this world can offer, all of your temporal needs met, but you are not righteous, you're not forgiven, then when you die, you will not be with God and you will be eternally miserable. What then is the deepest, most pressing need of any human being? It's being righteous. And since none of us are righteous, the best thing that Jesus can do for any of us is to forgive us, to take away every last thing that stands between us and God. Jesus, in this passage, is not being clumsy. He's not super-spiritualizing the moment. Jesus is the only one in the room who is in touch with the true condition of humanity. He's not blinded by thinking of a temporal timeline. He can unparalyze the man, but if he doesn't forgive him, that man will be eternally miserable, even if he can move around. And so Jesus steps in to meet the man's greatest need. He forgives his sins, not because the man was unusually sinful, but because that was his greatest need. And if he gives the man that, he's just given the man everything. Now, I've just made the case of what Jesus did is necessary when you take eternity into consideration. It's also necessary if you want to live a good life on this earth. Because when you see it from God's point of view, what Jesus just did is empowering. Jesus basically says to the man, you're suffering. I see that. But your suffering is not your biggest problem. Your sin is. Now, again, to our ears, that sounds offensive does not sound empowering. So what do I mean? In this life, 
you're going to suffer. Things are going to happen to you. Some of those are impersonal. Your body could become paralyzed. Most of what happens to you in suffering is personal. Someone sins against you. Now again, think. What can you control? Can you control what your body does to you? Can you control what other people do to you? Honestly, not much. Not very much at all. Most of what happens to you is outside of your control. But what if you could control your response to what happens to you? That would be empowering. What if you weren't controlled by what happens to you and so you were not embittered when someone sins against you? You don't think about it constantly and endlessly. You're not enraged, out of control. You're not depressed, not anxious, not worried. You don't retreat from life out of fear or because you feel overwhelmed. You don't become aggressive, lashing out, hurting other people, trying to pay them back for what they did to you. What if you were not controlled by what you wanted out of life, by what you thought you had to have? Well, what if you could respond like God would respond? That would be empowering. To step into ugly moments with love, to step into ugly moments with humble courage, flip it around, with courageous humility, in a way that does not allow hate and fear and bitterness to consume you. See, if sin no longer controlled you, you could respond in ways that did not make things worse for yourself, didn't walk around with them, eating you alive, and you'd be able to engage other people with grace and kindness mixed with strength, the same strong grace, the same strong kindness that Jesus extended to the paralyzed man and to the scribes, which is what the scribes needed. Because if you think about it, paralyzed man is not the only one who needs his sins forgiven. They have the same need. They have the same underlying condition that the paralyzed man has. Same refusal to go along with God in his program. You see that in their antagonism toward Jesus. And so Jesus does what? He's not consumed and controlled by that moment, but he steps strongly into their world because he wants them to know that he has the authority to forgive sins. What is that? It's an invitation to them to see their greatest need and to get the help that only he can give. That's point two. Jesus thinks that people's greatest need is to be forgiven, all the people that he encounters. So point three, why should you and I care that this is what Jesus thinks? Yes, it will give you a better, less stressed, less anxious life here, but that's the result of agreeing with him. That's not a reason to believe him. The reason to care about what he thinks is because he has authority. Authority not only to forgive sins, but by implication, he has authority to diagnose the problem as sin. And it's this issue of authority that sets him on a collision course with the scribes. They're sitting there asking themselves, verse 7, why does this man speak like this? Who does he think he is? What are they doing? They're judging him. They're setting themselves over him as the ones who have the right to evaluate him, who have the authority 
to evaluate him. The authority to decide that he is not the authority. And Jesus gets that. That's why his response is directed to them and not to the paralyzed man when he says, verse 10, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That you may know. Jesus just said, I'm going to heal this man. Not only for his own sake, but for yours. To prove to you that I have the authority to do this. And by extension, that I have the authority to say that this needs to be done before anything else is done. You don't have the authority to judge me because you don't have the authority to do what only God can do. But I'm about to show you that I do have that ability. I am that authority. Jesus is entering in here to the question that was raised back in the Garden of Eden. Serpent challenged God's voice. It's the question of who has the authority? Who has the right and the ability to tell you how to live? Who has the authority to say, this is good, this is bad? Believe this, don't believe that. This will lead to a good life and a good society, this will not. Who has the authority to decide those things? Does that come from God? Or does it come from something else, some other voice, some other person, some other philosophy? some other belief structure, some other cultural locus of authority. Why do we trust and listen to and follow Jesus or some other authority? Who has the authority? That question keeps being asked down the millennia. Is God the one who has the authority? Or is it someone or something else? It's not just a question for Adam and Eve in the garden. It's a question for all people, everywhere, for all time to have to wrestle with. It's for the scribes in front of Jesus. It's for you. It's for me. Who has the right to say, this is the way the world is? Who should be believed? Jesus knows that that is the question. So he says to the scribes, who has the authority? I do. I am the authority. And then he does what only God can do to verify that the world is the way that Jesus says it is. Which means now that the scribes have to make a decision. They have to decide whether to believe him or not. Whether they will accept his authority and reshape their ideas around his, or whether they're going to keep judging him according to the way that they want to think instead. Whether they will bet their lives on what he says or whether they will hang on to their own authority. They have to make a decision. Same decision that you and I have to make. It's a decision that Jesus forces on us. He will not let you look at this account and say, man, that's a really cool miracle. Jesus really likes people. Instead, the whole point of the miracle is polarizing. And Jesus meant it to be. It's to bring you to a decision point. It does not proclaim Jesus the wonder worker. Jesus, the humanitarian. Jesus, the really, 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 really good guy. The miracle proclaims Jesus, the sin forgiver. Jesus, God come to earth. Jesus, the one you will submit to and listen to. Or Jesus, the one you will reject and want nothing to do with. 
that's the only option that Jesus leaves open to you. Either you bow before him and you orient your life around him, or you dismiss him as utterly insane. Those are the only two options he gives. Think again about what he just said to the paralyzed man. He said, your sins are forgiven. But the man's not in a temple. He's not just made a sacrifice. He did not even confess his sins or repent of them. Instead of his own initiative, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. They are gone, wiped out. And if there's any doubt as to what he means, he tells the scribes, he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, he just said to the man, I forgive you. I forgive you. He just treated himself as the most aggrieved person in the room. The person whose forgiveness the paralyzed man needs more than he needs anyone else's. The person whom the paralyzed man sinned against first and foremost. Now, if Jesus is not God, if he has no authority, he is literally the greatest megalomaniac the world has ever seen. No one else in the history of the world has said something like that and been sane at the same time. Let's say the two of us go out somewhere. Someone comes along and they yell at you. They curse you, they rip you off, they, maybe they hit you. I see that and I turn to them and I say, I forgive you. Are you going to be okay with that? Now you have two people you're upset with. The first person who sinned against you, and now me, who's acting like what they did to you, they really did to me. If I say, I forgive you to them, you're going to think, man, Bill's not quite right. Something's off in him somewhere. Something that is out of touch with reality. Something that's not just narcissistic, but dangerously narcissistic. Something that you would want to distance yourself from, and that would be the right move. This is why Jesus just cannot be a good teacher. He is either beyond insane, or he is what he says he is, the Son of God who has the authority to forgive sin and to command your and my obedience. But how do you tell? You weren't there. Is there any other evidence that helps you decide? Is this dangerous insanity? Or is this God who humbles himself to come live among us and who uses his authority to help us? How do, how do you tell the difference? Think about the things that we've learned already. Don't park your brain in this moment. Think about things that we saw last week. That when Peter tells him, everyone is looking for you, Jesus walks away from them. He walks away from the fame. He walks away from being sought after. Or think about last week how he stayed outside of cities in desolate places so that he would not be overrun by crowds flocking to him. I think about this week. He does not look for a major public venue in which to teach. 
He's hidden away inside a house. The only people who can hear him are those who can stuff themselves inside the house. He thinks a small group of people are worth his time and attention. He's not off looking for a great big crowd. Or think about how easily he's interrupted. How he stops what he's teaching. He doesn't think that that's the most important thing that's taking place in that moment. Doesn't get angry, does not get insulted at the interruption. He adjusts himself to the needs of a person in that moment who has nothing to offer him in return. Think about all that. Does that sound like someone who's full of himself? Power hungry? Driven by an exaggerated sense of self-importance? Hungering for notoriety, wanting to control other people's lives? Narcissistic, insane? Jesus does the most humble things while saying he's God. While saying that he is literally the center of the universe around whom you should build your life. You would never put that mix of characteristics in the same person. You would never write something like this. It would never occur to you to write something like this. Unless what? Unless it's really true. Unless these were the things that Jesus actually did and said. And it was these things that set him on a collision course with the scribes and other religious leaders of the day. Despite seeing what he does for their benefit, the religious leaders are going to harden their antagonism. They will reject his authority, and they will use their own authority not to forgive sin. They will use their authority to commit sin, to later condemn Jesus, an innocent man, to death. They'll do that, but it's really Jesus who set that course in motion. And he knew it. He knew that he obligated himself to the cross in the moment that he decided to meet the paralyzed man's deepest needs to forgive him. No one else in the room that day understood what he was saying. But Jesus did. He knew that he obligated himself to take that man's place. Because for justice to be done, Sin cannot be ignored. That is not what forgiveness means. Sin has to be paid for. It's not enough for God to say, it's okay. I forgive you, don't worry about it. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying, it doesn't matter what you did to other people. They'll get over it. They'll eat whatever it was that you've done to sin against them themselves. They'll pay for it. God doesn't say that. Because that's not what God means by forgiveness. Instead, God is saying, it's okay, I forgive you. Because I will make up for what you've done. I will pay for it. I will set right the things that you have set wrong. I will do that because you could never make them right. You could never pay for them. So when Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven, he is obligating himself in that moment to take those sins on. Obligating himself to trade places with the man. And so they do. Paralyzed man gets up and goes free. He walks away that day. In the same moment that Jesus takes a step to the cross, Jesus in that moment is walking now to the cross. where he will not be free, 
where he will be pinned to the cross, nailed there, unable to move, paralyzed. While he pays for the man's sin that he's forgiven, while he pays for your sin and mine. That's what we celebrate in communion now. The fact that Jesus does not only say, I know your deepest need, but that he acts to meet your deepest need, to forgive you your sins, so that he can turn you into a lover. I'm going to invite you to take a few moments now to talk with him. Maybe for some of you, you've been resisting his authority. He's been putting his finger on something in your life that you've been holding on to, something where you've been saying to him, no, I'm going to keep doing this because I know what's best for me more, more than you do. Take the time, if that's you, take the time to confess that. Ask for his help. Or maybe you've let yourself forget how he uses his authority how he uses his authority to make your life better, to free you from a burden you could never rid yourself of. And maybe this morning you've forgotten that. And so you're walking around with the weight, the guilt of your sin, rather than entering into the joy of being forgiven. Take a moment and look again at his heart for you. Or maybe you've never realized what your deepest need is. But now you're seeing it, and you're seeing his heart, and you think, man, I want you. Tell him that. He will not deny you. Whatever it is that he's put in your heart, take that back to him for a few minutes, and then we'll celebrate his sacrifice for us together. <laughs>